Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. And uh, welcome to uh, yet another Lynn Cullen Live, at least for now. Uh, It's April 6th, and it's a beautiful, uh, sunny Monday here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, during the plague. Whew. So, guys, it's been three days since last we talked, and obviously um, a month or two's year of a month or two's worth of news, I'll get it out, uh, has happened in the, in the interim, uh, which leaves me always with this where to start? Where to start? I'm going to start with um, some of the things that have made me laugh, <laughs> because laughter is, God knows, absolutely necessary now. Um, one of you sent me pictures, Ed, that would be you, uh, sent me pictures of the way some people are um uh, self-protecting while going out in public, and and some people are extremely funny. Other people are um, obviously oblivious to feeling uh, embarrassment. <laughs> you know, uh, the ones I'm thinking of, and the thing I think actually is probably pretty good at being a a, a mask. And that would be the pictures I've been seeing of men, especially men, it's funny, uh, wearing a, a menstrual pad taped to their, you know, because some of, some of them, I guess now, it's been a long time since I've had to use one, um, you know, they, they can just uh, be taped um, um, to your, your, your underpants. And, and so they're taped to their faces and it looks like they would work pretty damn well and also allow some, you know, breathing uh, to happen. I got a mask um, from the uh, internet the other day from uh, people sewing them at, at home and I, I wore it and uh, man, it was, I was walking the dog and we were walking up some hills and it was really impeding my ability to, to breathe. So I kept sort of slipping it off my nose. If there was no one around, I kept slipping it off my nose to get some air and only putting it up when I came upon somebody. I might try a menstrual pad next. I can just get my hands on one. Um, what else? Uh Barbara sent me some cute little things, uh, little statements that people have made. Can I share a few? I used to spin that toilet paper like I was on Wheel of Fortune. Now I turn it like I'm cracking a safe. (laughs) I saw somebody yesterday when I was walking the dog. Uh, do a handoff uh, from her car to another uh, woman, and it was a handoff of a, a large pack of, of toilet paper. <laughs> and I, I almost yelled at her, where'd you get that, or whatever, or lucky you, or something, and I just thought, oh, shut up. So I didn't do anything. 
let's see. Homeschool is going well so far. Two students have been suspended for fighting, and one teacher has been fired for drinking on the job. <laughs> I can't imagine um, the the toll this is taking on parents uh, with younger children, or for that matter, with sullen teenagers around. Well, you could have helpful teenagers, but if you like had me as a teenager, it would definitely have been a sullen one. Um, Let's see. Uh, another homeschooling joke. Day five of homeschooling. One of the monsters called in a bomb threat. And I guess that's it. Um, so speaking of toilet paper, guys, before we get to anything heavy, although toilet paper has been known to be a heavy subject these days as well, but... Um, the the New York Times uh, published a a picture of the patent application of a guy named S. Wheeler, and this application is from 1891. Um, and folks, it's the first roll of toilet paper as we know it. And so this is, this is a schematic uh, rendition of uh, Mr. Wheeler's uh, invention. Uh, it's clearly paper and it's perforated um, at, at certain junctures. And I just want to point out this. The role as pictured has the toilet paper coming over the top, which is what I've argued all my life as the way you are supposed to install a roll of toilet paper. It comes over the top. And clearly now I have the inventor himself agreeing uh, with that because his his schematic here that's what it shows. It comes over the top. Now, um, believe it or not, this article in the New York Times says that there, there are people who actually are historians of toilet paper. <laughs> and um, I can't imagine there being a ton of them, but there are. As a matter of fact, I had an obit I wanted to share with you today about a guy who, uh, big enough to get an obit in the New York Times, and uh, he was an organic chemist who studied uh, body odor. Can you, uh, body odors, so not just underarm odor, what we think of as body odor, but all emanations of an olfactory kind coming off of humans or out of humans, can you imagine? Maybe I'll share more of it uh, with you uh, in a bit. Uh, but one of the things that the article goes into, because the headline is, you don't need that toilet paper, uh, which really isn't true. I mean, most Americans do need that toilet paper. I do not need it um, because I am one of the few Americans 
who have followed the lead of the Japanese in their manner of uh, cleaning their nether regions. The Japanese, and they're so right on this. I mean, and the article points that out, how there is not a health care expert in the universe who wouldn't agree that the way we clean ourselves uh, with toilet paper is the most extraordinarily unsanitary and environmentally uh, suspect uh, way, and that there are known better ways, but for some reason, and it's probably cultural, almost every other nation will refuses to do what the Japanese and I have done. And that is, well, I have a Japanese toilet is what I have. I got one. Um, all my others are normal. But a Japanese toilet, it does not require, I can't believe I'm telling you, does not require toilet paper um, because it it's like a bidet and a toilet. So it literally shoots water <laughs> and and cleans you off with water which totally works and is works so much better and does not involve of course your hands or cutting down forests so the brand that gets the most attention is called toto t o t o and uh you know, if and when this is over, I recommend that you you get yourself at least one Toto. They are pricier than a regular toilet, but by the time you, you know, you save all, all that money on toilet paper and, and, first, and know you're cleaner, for God's sake. Anyway, just wanted to say um, I have been not hoarding toilet paper at all, at all. And I am find myself very, very lucky in, in that regard. Um, I also must say that when I've had guests and I've asked if they wanted to try to use my uh, Toto, um, I would say most of them, both m- mostly no male and female, have emerged from my bathroom and say with a, a negative reaction that they found it, well, I guess they're not used to having, you know, water uh, squirted, uh, but they, they've been freaked by it, which I find fascinating. So anyway, just telling you, Toto for, uh, uh, for later. Although I know plumbers are, are essential workers, so uh, that is possible. Um, all right, guys, stop sending me this stuff. People are sending me funny things and often they're visual and I, I can't share. I have to take a drink. Hang on. I'm guzzling. Ah, that's water. There's a lot people turning into, um, either great cooks when this, you know, during this time or alcoholics. Um, I will be the, the latter uh, for sure. Uh, because 
for one thing, I can't figure out how, you know, cooking for one is hard enough. I just keep eating the same things over and over again, and I'm starting to get a little nuts about it, but what the hell. Um, all right. Talked about my toilet. That's certainly a very important thing to share with you. Uh, God. All right. Shall I wade into some of the heavier stuff? No, wait. I want to share one thing with you first, and then I hope after I do this that some people will maybe call. Um, I have not done this in ages, uh, which is essentially read an entire column to you. Um, I, you know, normally I just highlight something that allows me to then, but I, I think this is so well done, um, that I would like to do almost all of it. This was in perhaps Saturday's New York Times. The, um, opinion writer is, uh, Roger Cohen and, um, Here goes. My sister, who lives in London, has been passing lockdown time going through old slides of my father's discovered last year. Every now and then she sends me a grainy or mildewed photograph, a message in a bottle from across the ocean. The pandemic has prompted a universal time of reflection. The past, more present, is the new field of exploration absent the ability to move. So there we are, my sister and I, still in the cocoon of innocence, happy, curious, with my mother mainly, my father occasionally, my my grandparents. Everyone but us in these photographs is now dead. My parents, all those South African aunts and uncles, that world, gone. The dead feel much closer now, along with all those things they lived, the depression, the war, confinement, the ships that drifted around the world with unwanted people like the Jewish refugees aboard the St. Louis on its voyage of the damned during World War II. That was the ship that the United States turned away, filled with women and children, desperate to uh, save themselves from Hitler. And we turned that ship around, sent them back. Almost all of them were killed. Back to Roger Cohen. The virus teaches something forgotten. And that is what it is like to be swept away by the gale of history. What it is for every assumption to collapse. What is precious in each single breath. It is said the camera never lies. But behind those smiles in my father's slides lay family tragedy. When I researched my grandparents' history in Lithuania and gazed at photographs of the Jewish life there that would be extinguished, I recall thinking as I looked at the pictures, you, sir, are doomed. 
and you sitting on that wagon and you with your hand on your horse's withers. Again, I digress for a moment. I have often had that same reaction as I have looked at pictures of the shtetls, the ghettos of uh, Eastern Europe and looking at those faces that look so much like my family. And I have looked at them, at the little girl sitting with her mother um, of the father and families, and I've looked at them and thought, you are doomed. And Roger Cohen goes on to say, yet I feel more connection than catastrophe to those people, to my family, to everyone out there, now looking backward and inward, sifting memories, adjusting priorities. Less is more, old recipes revived, old purses reopened and redolent of a grandmother's apartment, old rhythms of life in a small radius rediscovered. It is the end of an era. The virus kills, to what degree is still unclear. It also screams, you must change your life. The world that emerges from this cannot resemble the old. If this plague that cares not a whit for the class or status of its victims cannot teach us solidarity, over individualistic excess, nothing will. If this continent-hopping pathogen cannot demonstrate the precarious interconnectedness of the planet, nothing will. Unlike 9-11, this assault is universal. Yet the two most powerful men on earth, President Xi of China and President Trump, have responded with petty national interest that has cost myriad lives. They have failed the world. It's a superpower debacle. China covered up the initial coronavirus outbreak in December for several weeks and then tried to divert attention from this biological Chernobyl through trumpeting its success in containing the illness. Their numbers remain dubious. Offering international assistance and propagating the wild conspiracy theory that the plague did not start in Wuhan, but was cooked up in an American military lab and delivered by the United States team attending the Military World Games in Wuhan last October. The lesson is not, as China would have it, that despotic regimes deal more effectively with disaster, but that they incubate the fear that made it impossible for doctors and authorities there to communicate rapidly the scale of the threat a series of tweets last month from the Chinese embassy in France lauding China's and Asia's superior response 
due to the sense of community and citizenship that Western democracies lack was grotesque. Li Wenlang, who died in February, and Ai Fen, who appears to have disappeared, are the whistleblower doctors of Wuhan, whom humanity must never forget. Trump tweeted on March 29th as Americans died, President Trump is a ratings hit. His daily COVID-19 reality TV show, which he called his coronavirus updates, had an astounding number to him of viewers, more akin to the viewership of a popular primetime sitcom, said the president. Says Roger Cohen, if you want a quick definition of obscenity, there it is. This is the mentality, or rather the mental affliction, that compounded the Chinese cover-up with a Trump-authored America, American confabulation that lost an entire six weeks in dismissal of the pandemic as a hoax. The world is leaderless. It's every country for itself swirling in lies, schoolyard petulance like Mike Pompeo, the worst American Secretary of State in a long time, insisting, insisting on calling this coronavirus the Wuhan virus. It is hard now here in New York, everywhere really, reading the numbers, seeing the triage tents and portable morgues, the millions suddenly without jobs, the people dying alone, discarded blue and white latex gloves on the street, insomnia, choppers over the city at night, the Zoom gatherings that console but also recall that touches beyond technology, the way people veer away from a passerby, the corona swerve, the sirens, the silence that makes the sirens louder. All this has happened before. Not quite like this, but yes. My sister's photographs are also a memento mori, memento of death. And the world has come through because of people like the surgeon-in-chief at New York Presbyterian Hospital who wrote of COVID-19 patients in a moving dispatch to his medical troops, quote, they survive because we do not give up. We do not give up. We are connected to one another and to generations past and future. There are no strangers here. That's Roger Cohen. So much of what he said, I found myself wanting to then immediately talk about something else where he said it comes uh, for us all that uh, socioeconomic status, uh, you know, does not protect you, but yes, it does. 
Yes, it does. I was looking at a map of New York City. And in it, they show all the neighbor, all the boroughs, then all the neighborhoods in those boroughs, and how many so far, how how many uh, cases of coronavirus are in each neighborhood. And you look and you look, and my God, there's some that just jump out at you, like this one. It's the highest number. It's 947. That's the biggest in all of New York City. It's in the it's in Queens, but there are neighborhoods in Queens that have just 49 or 112. Why in the heavens is this one 947? And it turns out the neighborhood is called. You will not believe this. I'd never heard of it. I've heard of Flatbush. I've heard of Flushing. All nearby. I've heard of Jackson Heights. All nearby. But I have not heard of Corona. Do you believe it? The neighborhood in New York City with the most cases is actually called Corona. And it turns out Corona is not a wealthy neighborhood. It, in fact, is um, it is home to a lot of low-income people and um, and they live close together, and they live often um, many to um, the same apartment. It is where immigrants with large families live. They cannot isolate at home. And many of them have the kinds of jobs that are now deemed essential, certain service workers. And so they have to go out into this infected city and come back to their apartments and infect their own families. So I just want to say that looking at this map, it is so clear that the poor are going to pay a higher price. I'm looking at other big numbers, the South Bronx, other places with low uh, income. And then I look at the Upper West Side of Manhattan, 187, 121, not 947. So let us be clear that this is not an equal opportunity infestation. It is not that the rich or the powerful won't get it and or won't succumb. 
but the poor have so many fewer options to safeguard themselves. And those of us who are able to safeguard ourselves not only need to remember it, we need to do everything we can to help those who have less. I'm going to suggest another possible thing you can do because people are literally going hungry and will go hungry. There's not a finer nonprofit organization than the food bank. And it is now one of the more essential institutions in, um, in our city. So I became uh, this weekend a monthly contributor. You can do it like you would to, uh, you know, public radio. Um, that is the most helpful, they say, to have that, you know, constant sort of, you know, they know that if each of you give $5 a month, that that is a, something that they can rely on. I'm just going to throw that out there. You, you each, I know everybody needs money now, but that's one way to do it. And I think have a, an obviously positive uh, impact that will help those who do not have the resources that so many of us do. I have a caller. I hope the caller's still there. I'm sorry. Hello. Hi, caller. Yes, are you? Am I online? You sure are. You're on. Hi. Wow. I have never called into anyone, and you are Lynn Collin, I assume. Uh huh. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't even recognize your voice. Although I think I did see you in menopause once, maybe, perhaps. Um, I have so much to say. And, and uh, wow, I, I want to thank you for what you said. It was profound beyond. One of the things that everybody has forgotten is the power of the wish, which is prayer, uh, what we would call prayer. But what it really is is a power that's heart-centered. I'm a physician, and I went through all this, all this, and and I had to finally get out of it. Uh, unfortunately, by disability, to discover that in fact our heart is a cyclotron, literally a cyclotron. By physics, I can prove it, and we can, if we can learn to be heart-centered, then we can produce by by our natural production, we can produce what's love, what is called love, or in Sanskrit, it's called bodhicitta. So the best thing we can really do right now, unfortunately, and it sounds kind of backwards, that we have to sit down and shut up and become heart-centered and and sort of like purify our own selves by wishing good things for ourselves and by wishing positive things for everyone. You know, in the best thing, like Jesus said, pray for your enemies. These are heart-centered things that come like a wish a true heart center thing. It produces a chemical called bodhicitta, which is light and it's all pervasive and it will change everything. We just need a critical mass of it. So okay. we can do this with our heart. Okay. That's a, yes. Thank you so much. I, yeah. I know it sounds kind of weird, but I'm talking about energy. And yeah. Energy okay. And There's nothing. Not, yeah. Okay. I'm, I agree yeah. and thank you. Yes. The power of the wish. Thank the you. power of our hearts. Power of love. It, it's certainly a positive. Our, our, our 
Thank you. Remember, we really have cyclotrons inside our chest. All right. Our brains Thank are you. the office, our hearts are our home. Right. Thank, thank you. Yes, thank you. Bye. Bye. Okay. Um, <laughs> what? Uh, wait a minute. I'm just doing some emails here, guys. Uh, Barbara wants to know about my toto. Is the water warmed in some way? <laughs> yes, dear, it is. The water's not only warm, you can warm the seat. You can warm, it is so civilized, it's beyond belief. It has uh, different jets for front and, and aft. Um, you can have it pulse or just simply wash sort of over you. Um, it is, uh, all done with this little push button. You never, <laughs> yes, you can warm the water specifically to a temperature that you enjoy, not too hot, not too cold. Um, but it's amazing how many people can't stand it, but, uh, there you go. I got news for you. It is what we should all, be. uh, oh, Another one of you has it. Great. Um, uh, it's essentially a bidet, yes, but it's a toilet and a bidet in, in one. Um, I think we have a, another caller. Hello, caller. Hi, Lynn. It's Jeff. Hi, Jeff. I was, just, I was calling because you said before that you'd appreciate calls, so I have nothing really in particular. I'm just kind of checking in with you seeing how your mental health is if you're like me where i'm just kind of like a leaf blowing in the wind not yeah. knowing where i'm going where i'm going to end well, up or anything it's uh well you know what uh, i've always sort of described myself even before this like that i've always i've i've never been a real goal-oriented person and i've never um i i always said i i have no idea how life took me where it did. I always felt like a leaf on a stream just being carried along. And I've been a very lucky leaf <laughs> stream, but you know, it was never my intention to, to do what I'm doing for a living. It was not my intent. Things just, I mean, I, I don't plan ahead very well. So in that regard, I'm, I'm doing okay. I have good days, bad days, good parts of days, bad parts of days. I can turn on a dime, you know. It's funny that you use the leaf in the – I said the leaf like floating around, but it's funny you use the leaf in the stream analogy. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you've yeah. ever read any uh, – Herman Hesse, Siddhartha. Yeah. There's a part in there where that's what he talks about is like being like a leaf in the stream and not trying to grab onto something and hold right. on. Because the current of the stream will just beat you up, you know, and that's kind of, uh, we're both the same on that account, you know. <laughs> yeah, just uh, let go. It's a, it's a lot about, like, obviously then you and I are not control freaks. I mean, we're more willing to, you know, just let life happen. I'm always, I, as I said, I'm so stunned always when I bump into a teenager and they say, well, my goal is to this, that. I mean, they've mapped out their lives and I'm thinking, God, I hope you don't stick to that i mean well i hope I you let it's, life it's happen. Good to have a plan it's yeah good to have a plan but you got to be able to adapt too yes exactly you know? that's it that's I, I you're, mean, you're right 
I went to college thinking that I'd have a good job in some office, and thank God I didn't. You know, I had a job yeah. in an office for a little while, but I've, you know, I kind of fell into carpentry and painting, and it's actually kept me physically in health. You know, where mm-hmm. I'm always moving around and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, one of the reasons what kind of prompted me to call, and it's really superfluous, but you were talking about Corona, the uh, little neighborhood in uh, Queens. Yeah. A little trivia for you, okay? Yeah. The Paul Simon song, Me and Julio oh. Down by the Schoolyard, Goodbye to Rosie, Queen of Corona. Corona. That's what oh, my God. Yeah. That's it. And and he's from Queens, and, you know, that's what he's referencing. And actually, I think it was either his last concert, you know, because he quit, you know, going on tour. It was either his last concert or one of the closer ones to, like, the end. He actually did live in a park in Corona. Wow. So, a little trivia for you there. Wow. Yes, Corona. I never knew what that meant, Queen of Corona. (laughs) No, I do. But Corona is is suffering, is suffering more than any other neighborhood. Incredible. And and there there is a disparity. Uh, Some of us, I'll count, count myself as being more fortunate, you know, but there are a lot of people out there that are really, really suffering. I, I just thinking, you know, some older people. The other thing, you know, as I was brushing my teeth this morning, it occurred to me that I actually, when I was born, I was closer to the 1918-1919 pandemic than I am to this current pandemic in terms of years. I was never taught about oh. the 1918 pandemic in school. Uh, I never, you know, heard about it from like family. The only thing I know about the pandemic is from like PBS American experience did something on it. And, um, on downtown Abbey, there's a little bit about the, you know, the Spanish flu on the, and the downtown right. Abbey. And, you know, just, and it's, it's so weird. I was looking for something to read and I picked up a book that I had picked up. Uh, I'd never read it before. It was at my mom's house and it was just a book that had been kind of discarded. I says, I'm going to read this Upton Sinclair world's end. Don't you know, I started picking up the, I started reading world's end right as this whole thing hit. And so, (laughs) and it takes place from like 1914 or 1913 on through to about like 1919. And once again, that touches on the, you know, on the Spanish flu is involved in that, you know, in world war one and everything. A lot of strange little coincidences going on here that, you know, I don't know. I never, I, I, my mother always, yeah, my mother always talked about that pandemic, not because, well, she was born about three years after it, two or three years after it, but she knew of it because her own father um, had the, got the flu and that flu killed young men, his age, a lot, killed young people, uh, as opposed to this one, uh, which does, I mean, obviously they both kill anybody, but that was the age group that got taken down the most or 20 to 40. And, um, he survived, but what later in his life, when he got Parkinson disease, some doctor told him that he was seeing a lot of people who had survived the flu the pandemic and now have in their old age Parkinson's. So my mother might be some, some kind of like 
analogical connection there. Who knows? Uh, My mom always conflated it and said that she thinks that while he survived the flu, it did later give him, but who knows? I mean, that's unproven, but that's why I um, had, had known of it. And I also, one of the reasons there's not a lot of stories about it or movies um, is because Americans, it was, it was not something people wanted to remember um, people, uh, a lot, it was so horrific and people did not necessarily, um, behave Want to well. tell that story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so it just got buried. It's like sometimes people coming home from war do not want to talk about it. And that was right. the general reaction in America. You bury it. So What's that's so weird about this is. You hear stories of like some guy in Italy, I think he was 102 years old. He had actually had the Spanish flu and now he got the co- uh, the coronavirus and he survived, and survived. both. <laughs> and then know. yet there's this young, healthy yeah. athlete, you know, in the prime of their life and they get it and it hits them. It's just so weird. I don't know about you, but with me, like I don't go, I go to the little local market once a week because I order special bread from them. Mm-hmm. And but it's just so weird. It's like anything I touch, even my own car or anything, I just feel like everything I touch is weird. That I everything you touch hand. could kill you. That's what you think. And mm-hmm. and everybody, when I'm walking my dog, who like doesn't you know give way or or you know, I look at them like you're gonna kill me. <laughs> you know, it's like we're, and and they're looking at me in the same way. It's awful. I, I'd rather just stay home, um, you know, and I see that's, that there are that's some. That's what I've been doing. Well, there are some. Um, I would if I didn't have the dog. Um, there are some uh, countries that I read today that do not even allow dog walking, which begs wow. the question, doesn't yeah. it? Hey, How the did hell? you see the thing? In, did you see the thing? The tiger in the Bronx the tiger zoo? in the zoo. Yeah. What does that tell us now? That is, well, it doesn't it's, necessarily it's tell us anything. I mean, they they're going to make it through. No one's gotten it from them. They did pass it among themselves. These tigers. Well, what I wonder is like how this virus is mutating. That's yeah. what makes me wonder about it. Well, you know, I don't know. Oh God, this is well, uh, the speculation of is, folks who don't know. Yeah. All that I can say is what everybody else is saying. Stay safe. Take care of yourself. I love you. Love your audience. And uh, I will I will be in touch. And uh, okay. I guess I, after well, you get I, done with the show, we can look at the birds tweeting, you know, in the flowers. That's right. At the very that's least. right. So, I love you, too. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Jeez, you guys. We have another caller. Hello. Hey, hey Lynn, is it me? Yes, is you. Good morning. Um, hey, you—you you were starting to talk about that. Uh, this the Spanish flu. I'll, I'll give you a little, a couple of more uh, mind pictures to to contemplate about that. Um, my dad was born in 1918, and he was one of 18 children born to the same parents they were first generation german immigrants oh they lived God. they lived three doors up 
from what is now the Ohio River Boulevard, you know, Route 65 in, uh-huh. in Bellevue. That's that's yeah, where it's sure. from. And uh, where where Uncle Dougie spent his last days, by the way, <laughs> right? Exactly uh-huh. right. Yeah. And 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 um, so of course I had growing up lots of uh, older aunts and uncles that were older than my dad, and I remember my aunts telling me stories about when they were now, now this is of course when Ohio River Boulevard was nothing more than basically a dirt road, right? Yes. They would sit up they would sit up on in their third floor bedrooms and of course they were all packed in this small house you can you can imagine. But I remember vividly my aunts describing looking as they would look out, they were quarantined, as they looked out down onto the Ohio River Boulevard, they would just watch parades of horse drawn carriages stacked up with baby caskets. Oh. caskets of, of of babies that of course just you know died in infancy and she said they were just you know they were they were loaded so high they always thought that the that the carriage was going to tip over at some point oh. um, and they and that's what they watched you know for months and months you at imagine? a time wow. and um they just uh and again, you know, many, many of those 18 children that were, you know, that my dad's uh, siblings, of course, you know, quite a few of them actually died in infancy as well, not necessarily because of the flu, because, you know, infant mortality in those days was even higher than it is today. But um, at any rate, I, I just thought you would. That's amazing. You, you, would, you would appreciate that imagery. And, uh, uh, yeah, you know, when we when we think about comparing uh, in some ways, how how bad we have it to what other generations have lived uh, through. Maybe it seems a little bit quite not so bad for us. You know what I mean? Perspective. Yes. Right. Right. Thank you. So, Thank that, you very that's all I much. Had for you. It's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you Bye. Bye. I'm also thinking about his dad's mom. Eighteen. She gave birth to eighteen. Jeez, God, my Lord. Mary sent me a story about a Toto, like my toilet. I have a funny Toto story, she said. My husband and I took a group trip to Japan a few years ago. Shortly after we arrived in Tokyo, the ladies of the group lined up at the closest women's room. One poor jet-lagged lady, a few people ahead of me in line, was next for the stall And all of a sudden, she started screaming. (laughs) She she adjusted her clothing and slammed out of the stall with water squirting out of the toilet all over her clothing. She must have pushed the wrong button on the controls. None of the rest of us were used to the Totos either. So we all went and found a different ladies' room in case there was some major plumbing explosion going on in that first one. That was my my introduction to a major cultural plumbing difference. <laughs> well, the the article that I read about the toilet paper and the totos said that um it really uh there there's a lot of cultural resistance not just in the United States but all over to what the Japanese have invented and 
I'm sorry, guys. It's uh, it's a better mousetrap. I don't understand why people, uh, you know, wouldn't wouldn't uh, embrace it. Uh, wait, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to get on. Uh, Chuck writes, is it my imagination or has your audience grown exponentially <laughs> like the virus over the last month or two? Just wanted to say how much I love hearing all these new voices. It reminds me of the old days. It does. I mean, a lot of people who remember the old radio show are, are you know, getting echoes of it, right? To everyone, please keep it up. We need each other right now. There we go. Chuck, I'm leaving your last remark unsaid. Um, so uh, I think I have, hang on. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have another. Amy, is there another caller? I'm I'm getting mixed up here. If there is, uh, speak up. Hello? I don't think there is. Um, Hello? N- oh, there is. Hi. Hi. Hey. Hey, I, uh, I was going to call about Spanish flu, but that last caller reminded me um, my grandfather was in the same situation except his mother gave birth to 24 kids. Mm-hmm. So we can one up each other, but the what the hell? <laughs> you have I, I mean, I I can't even. I, I that is. And how long did that woman live? I don't know. This was long before I was around. So I, I don't know more about that. But especially, I would be. I know, like you said, most of them did not live. I think eight of them lived. Uh, so that's oh, oh. So everything about that sounds terrible. Um, Oh. Um, you know, this always comes up in those conversations about vaccines and stuff like that, too. And um, uh, in my West Virginia days, I used to, would every once in a while, stumble into these rural graveyards, the family plots. With these, yes. With, I mean, with the little tiny um, yes. stones marked, you know, uh, out at the edge that had no markings on them. There would just be little tiny rocks, and I assume those were all the kids that didn't live. Yeah. But I, I don't really know that. I mean, you can... Also, mildly interesting, when I was a student in college, we did an exercise where we would go, you could go to the cemetery, and if you looked before a certain, I don't know, I don't remember how we did that, but there was, if you looked at graves, we would go to um, the cemetery there by your house, I can't remember. Uh, Homewood? Homewood Cemetery. Yeah. But regardless, we would go to Homewood Cemetery, and all we would all the students would walk out across the graveyard, and with you could mark down the ages of the people, and you could graph them out and see how the children didn't live even in there. And I would right. assume if you had a stone that was marked in Homewood Cemetery, you were not a poor kid. I'm assuming. Um, I uh, I would assume that too. Right. You know, so I I walk yeah I walk often in cemeteries, and I'm always doing the math. I'm always doing the math. And uh, right. a lot of people, you know, way back when lived long lives. And then, a, but I think surviving your infancy was a big issue. I mean, once you maybe made it out of childhood, you, you had a pretty good shot. And I, I think yeah, it's I think why so. the life expectancy was so low is all those babies dying. Right. No, that was the. I mean, that's like that's what we were. The exercise we were doing in school was you could graph it out, and there's a big 
there used to be a big peak in death rates for humans at very young, and then again when they're very old, of course. I'll tell you another uh, graveyard story that is just freaks you out is the grave, uh, the cemetery uh, way, way up on the hill in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And, oh, my God, that, I mean, row after row after row of entire families and all uh, the same date, the same date over and over again of the flood. It is, it's mind-blowing. It would be pretty fine. I haven't had it. I've been to Johnstown. We we went a couple years ago with the intention of tour, doing, you know, going to the museum for the flood and stuff. But then it just so happened we had bought train tickets and it was the same day as a huge snowstorm two or three years ago. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so the train, the train was still the most on-time train I've ever ridden for Amtrak, but uh, everything else was closed. There was no way to get up there to the top of the hill. I think even the incline there was closed. Uh, right. So we weren't able Bad to timing there, there huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bad timing. So before I hang up, though, other th- I was remembering in all this conversation the first time I had ever heard of the Spanish flu. This is far less pleasant. It was back in the 90s. I was in an argument with a guy while we were drinking. Um, he was his. This was kind of still in the early days of AIDS, and there was a conspiracy theory out there that AIDS was not a big deal, yeah. and that and they were the conspiracy theorists then were comparing it to the Spanish flu, which and that was the first time I had ever heard anybody ever mention it, and saying that the Spanish mm-hmm. flu was way worse. Um, which again kind of reminds me of all the conspiracy arguments now. Uh, uh, which is crazy. Yes, it's amazing. Sorry. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. But thank you. Thank you yeah. for, for thank calling. You for being I appreciate on the air. <laughs> yeah, well, you thank are you. welcome. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. You know, it occurs to me that one of my favorite books, and it's a little one, um, is a book by David, the historian, Pittsburgh historian David McCullough. And he uh, wrote a book that's simply titled, I believe, The Johnstown Flood. And man, that thing reads like uh, a page-turner novel. It is just uh, amazing. He brings the horror, the lives, everything, uh, you know, alive. And uh, if you have a way to download that or access it, um, I really recommend it. It's a great, great uh, read. Um, Oh God, I the, you know I, I'm I'm loath to get into some of this negative stuff, but uh, the last caller mentioned you know um, the craziness of some people still refusing to acknowledge the uh, what is happening, and the oh God I I just want to apologize one more time. My dog keeps dropping his bone, and it, it's okay. Um, and it's one thing if you're just a uh, you know, regular idiot who refuses to um, under, understand what is happening and what your responsibilities are. But man, it is another thing if you are the governor, if you are the governor of a state. And these guys, and they're almost all Republicans, and they're um, – I do want to, before I, you know, start ragging on all the Republican governors, 
I do want to uh, immediately acknowledge uh, the fact that two of the more impressive governors I have uh, noted during this are the Republican governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, and unbelievably to me, uh, the governor of the neighboring state of Ohio, Mike DeWine, who, uh, whose career I have often followed, and I could not stand the man because I don't agree with him politically at all, at all. And yet he, in this crisis, has been the first of many governors to do, you know, take pretty extreme measures. He's been out in front of all the others. And um, so while I can't stand the guy's politics, I tip my hat to his leadership in this moment. And you are seeing that, that we have a lot of politicians in positions where leadership is one of the job requirements and they are totally inept, incapable, and in some cases willfully so. The governor of Florida, for God's sake, the governor of Georgia, of Tennessee, the governors of some of these states, just unbelievable. Here's the governor of Tennessee, a statement he made. This was uh, just a few days ago. He said, wait a minute, I got to find it because it was just so mind-blowing to me. How come I can't find it? Um, oh, he said this. It is deeply, this is on March 30th. So what was that, five days ago? I forget what the date is. Um, yeah, it, it's a week ago. He said, it, it, he was refusing to close anything down a week ago. And he said this. It is deeply important that we protect personal liberties. Now, that's the American ideal. The American exceptionalism, our embrace of exactly that, our right individually to do whatever we damn well please. And our inability to understand that there are times when, in fact, that cannot be allowed, that the good of the whole would supersede your right to do what you want to do. The fact that there are governors with the ability to impose upon people, or in fact, presidents with the ability to impose upon people restrictions in this America, but who refuse to do so, because of their fealty to this ideal of American freedom. They're killing people. They are killing people. And so, hearkening back to the piece that I read from Roger Cohen, 
when he said, if we, if this experience does not teach Americans solidarity over individualistic excess, then nothing will. And I fear it's a lesson that some people simply can not learn. That same governor eventually actually did uh, issue an executive order. Um, I guess it was a day later, shutting down non-essential businesses. And then it took him more and more days to ask people to stay home. Meanwhile, the neighboring state of Kentucky which has a Democrat as the governor. How the hell that happened, I don't know. Um, is desperately trying to keep the citizens of his state from venturing over the border into what will become the hot spot of Tennessee. But of course, he, he's doing that because he knows that the virus doesn't care about borders. But if people stop traveling, then the virus cannot cross those borders. And it is these same southern governors that refuse to expand Medicaid. And these states, which has refused to close down, and they have uh, poorer populations. They did not expand Medicaid. You have a perfect storm gathering. And a writer who lives in one of these hell holes said, what does it mean to live through a pandemic in a state with a high number of uninsured citizens where many counties don't have a single hospital and where the governor delayed requiring people to stay home. Well, all across the South, we are about to find out. Um, again, some, some of the reality here, um, this pandemic is exposing a lot of the structural disadvantages that lower income people face, right? Their lack of job security, their uneven access to health care, the fact that they might live, um, in very close proximity to a lot of other people. So we are seeing played out in real time, the divide, the haves and the have nots in this country now. the outbreak is still new enough that the relationship between socioeconomic status and infection 
are not, these numbers are not yet determined, but as I said, that one map I saw in the New York Times clearly, clearly shows that your own intelligence would bring you there. And these are also the people that are the grocery cashiers and the stockers and the drivers and the people who are most at risk, who get paid the least and now are considered essential. As I said last week, I didn't see many uh, hedge fund managers being called essential. And Congress, well, because of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, none of the legislation that has been has been passed that is supposed to help the least of us, these essential workers, <laughs> those guys, these workers are going to get the same stimulus checks that other people are going to get, people who really don't need it, they aren't going to get an extra bonus. Democrats are renewing their push to include in the next bill occupational safety requirements for these uh, essential workers. They're calling for hazard pay for these people on the front lines. And that stuff didn't get anywhere, the last bill. Didn't get any traction at all with Pelosi trying desperately to talk to Mnuchin because the President of the United States will not talk to the Leader of the House. And the Republicans continue to say, no, no, no. They're killing people. Did you see that uh, one of the reasons uh, the federal response is is so <laughs> is so horrific is because apparently Jared Kushner is in charge. You thought Mike Pence was. Um, I don't know. See, that's part of the problem. You got Mike Pence doing his thing. But then you got Jared Kushner apparently doing his. And a lot of senior advisors uh, around uh, the White House say, yet you got to get to Kushner to get anything done. Forget the coronavirus task force. So you got Trump up there blaming the states for not having enough ventilators. And then you have Kushner. Did you see what he said? I'll give you the quote. The notion of the federal stockpile was it's supposed to be our stockpile. It's not supposed to be the state's stockpile. They have stockpiles piles that they are supposed to use. So they're blaming the governors. 
I got news for you guys. Whatever stockpiles they are, we paid for them. And there ain't much in those stockpiles because we've been led by fools and incompetence. And we have got the biggest fool in American history now in charge. A guy who stands there with the Surgeon General who has just urged all Americans to cover their faces when they go outside. And then Trump says, I'm not going to do it. I mean, how do you even... I, I I really, I don't know what to say. I'm so sorry for all of us. I really am. I didn't even see I'd gone over so long. I'll keep going for a little while, okay? Um... Okay. Barbara, stop sending me those things during the show because then I look at them and I can't share them. Um, I love them, but do it afterwards. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, the county has just sent out its update, its COVID-19 daily update. Let me give you the numbers. <sighs> and you know these are low. These, these are low. We don't have a clue. You have to assume that Allegheny County has well over a thousand cases, but the number we know is 642. And now four deaths. And unlike the rest of uh, the world, uh, women have us are slightly more. 51 percent of the cases are women. 49 are male. Um, and that is not the case um, normally, not that that's a huge difference. Um, and the largest uh, demographic group of positive cases continues to be those 25 to 49 years old. Um, what else I got for you? Oh, God, Captain Crozier. Jesus H. Unbelievable. Okay, so, um, yeah, the guy who spoke truth to power, the guy who tried to safeguard his troops, his sailors, um, has, of course, uh, lost his job and destroyed his career in caring for his people, which will have him go down in history as a great leader. The current acting secretary of the Navy will not. He says that the cap, Captain Crozier created a perception that the Navy is not on the job, that the government is not on the job. <laughs> no, you're wrong, you friggin' idiot, modly. It's not a perception. The Navy was not on the job in reality. And that's why the captain desperately tried to reach 
anybody who would help. And you worry that Captain Crozier has uh, has created a perception that the government is not on the job? Oh, ho, ho. yeah. We now have a Navy, uh, you know, and a commander-in-chief who um, pardons and lauds and parties with uh, people who broke every rule, the Navy SEAL, who Trump pardoned, he's been to Mar-a-Lago. He's a pal of Trump's now. The guy who knifed a kid to death. Uh, who, I just, I, you know, I can't even, um, and, and Crozier is the one who gets tanked. Well, I want to read you a historical tidbit that is really amazing. Uh, this comes to us from a guy named Tweed. Oh, God. Imagine naming your kid Tweed. Tweed Roosevelt. Yeah, and he is one of those Roosevelts. His great-grandfather was Teddy Roosevelt, who, as you know, commanded the volunteer uh, cavalry regiment, um, the, the Rough Riders, during the Spanish-American War. And, and the Rough Riders were in Cuba. Um, and they had been extraordinarily successful. Uh, the Battle of San Juan Hill had been fought and won, and the war was basically over. Unfortunately, though, the soldiers were still deployed in Cuba. And there was a yellow fever and malaria epidemic. And more of them were dying from these diseases than died in battle. And the commanders in the field, including Teddy Roosevelt, kept telling Washington, we need to bring our soldiers home. But the leadership in Washington, particularly a jerk named Russell Alger, who was the Secretary of War, refused. The career army office, I will read the rest of what Roosevelt's great-grandson writes. The career army officers who did not want to risk their jobs by being too outspoken were stymied. Roosevelt, though, as a short-term volunteer, had less to lose. So with the tacit approval of his fellow commanders, he wrote a fiery open letter and released it to the press. The letter was printed in virtually every newspaper in the country, creating an uproar demanding that the soldiers be brought home immediately. And the Secretary of War then, of course, relented, and the troops were sent home to quarantine on Long Island at Montauk Point. Hundreds of his men had died of disease in Cuba. But Roosevelt's 
action outside the chain of command undoubtedly saved countless more lives. Roosevelt paid a price. The Secretary of War was furious that Roosevelt made made him, essentially, look like a bad guy. And so even though Roosevelt had been nominated and expected to receive a Medal of Honor for his role with the Rough Riders, the Secretary of War shot down the nomination. Tweed Roosevelt says this, in this era, when so many seem to place expediency over honor, it is heartening that so many others are showing great courage, some even risking their lives. Theodore Roosevelt in his time chose the honorable course. Captain Crozier, now the former captain of the USS Theodore Roosevelt has done the same. Isn't that amazing? The irony, the irony of Crozier captaining a ship named after Teddy Roosevelt who did essentially the exact same thing that got Crozier fired. It's amazing. So, I think, ooh, Amy, oh God, I am sorry. Um, are there any callers there? I guess we have callers. Um, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I was going on too long. Is there a caller there? Go ahead. Hello. Hi. I forgot what I was going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, you could save it for tomorrow when you remember. Oh, no, I, 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 it, it's coming back. No, what you're saying about like you know, people dying and these Republicans still aren't getting it. I mean, mm-hmm. I thought it was bad when people were getting shot up and kids were getting shot up in schools yeah. um, and they weren't getting it then and they're still not getting it. So what the hell? But, um, and, and Jared talking about these are ours. Unbelievable. It's, it's just unbelievable. And, um, and the other, the other thing, um, there is some, a lot of, in ignorance because like you we have a cleaning woman who comes in twice a month every two weeks and we told her to stay home we'll pay her and she was talking to my wife this morning and just saying well i don't understand what the big deal is there's you know the, you know, the flu kills more people i'm like oh gosh what news is she reading? yeah there you go and and, and you and, see there's already and, a lawsuit there's already a lawsuit against fox news um, from a group saying that uh, you spreaded false information during a national emergency, you have cost lives. Um, I don't know that that's going to necessarily get anywhere, but you know what? They are costing lives. They have cost lives. 
all those right-wing blowhards. And it is it is amazing that they will be able to, what, skate by once this is over? I sure as hell hope not. But, but I didn't know that until you just told me that. But even if it goes nowhere, it's bringing awareness to some awareness, to some degree. And maybe even Fox News is going to, while they, you know, while no. Sean Hannity will go on at night crying about, they're getting sued, it's so unfair. At least it may make some people think. I don't. I don't have too much hope for that. Listen, listen. Uh, if you're still thinking that some people are going to think who listen regularly to Sean Han- uh, Hannity, uh, no, um, they don't. They can't. I don't. I don't know why they're so invested that they'll literally go down with the ship. I. I, I don't know. But they're killing a lot of. They're taking a lot of other people with them, and it's just mind blowing. Well, well, my my wife. She grew up in a rural area. Her mom still lives there. She lives out in Bedford County. And she's telling me, you know, people are still out and about here. And, and, and which doesn't surprise me because I know that demographic out there because we visit there frequently. And I was watching the, new, the local news this morning talking about that people getting contract more cases and, and up, update on the number of deaths in western Pennsylvania. Um, I'm seeing, while a disproportionate amount of people, when you talk about per capita, that in the rural counties, they're, per capita, they're getting it more because I, my belief is they perceive it's a city problem. Urban thing, yeah, and they, sure. Yeah and, yeah, and it's like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, and, and you know they have fewer they have fewer uh, medical facilities and I I don't know it's it's going to get ugly um, it's going to get really ugly so batten down the hatches I think I have another caller I'm not sure so R- Roger I got to run okay, okay I'm not gonna... all right all right have a good rest of your day it's beautiful okay you too <laughs> try to get up. okay right, okay bye bye oh wait okay um sorry. I wasn't keeping up. Uh, Amy says no. And anyway, guys, it's pretty dang late here. Let here. I just want to. I'll share this with you, and then I'm saying goodbye because <clears throat> I actually do have a bunch of stuff I have to do today. Uh, this is this is disgusting. This is beyond disgusting. Okay, the acting secretary of the Navy, <clears throat> Thomas Modley blasted the now-ousted commander of the USS Theodore Roosevelt as stupid in an address to the ship's crew this morning. Unbelievable. The crew that cheered him. And by the way, are you aware that uh, Captain Crozier now has the virus? He does. He's sick and in quarantine. This is the acting fucking, excuse me, Secretary of the Navy. He told the crew that their former commander, Brett Crozier, was either, quote, too naive or too stupid to be in command. While Modley, it says here, has publicly refrained from accusing Crozier of leaking the letter to the media, 
in his address to the ship's crew, he accused him of committing a betrayal and creating a big controversy in Washington. See, these are people who are, this is a guy who's just covering his ass, trying to cover any, you know, the Secretary of Defense's ass. These guys care more about protecting themselves than protecting their men and women. More words from this idiot. It was a betrayal. And I can tell you one other thing, because he did that, he put in the, it in the public forum, and it is now a big controversy in Washington. Forgot, yeah, so that's his mistake. Yeah. But Washington started doing what he asked them to do after he did what he did, exactly like the way Theodore Roosevelt played it. Back in the, the 1898, or whenever the hell that was. Oh, my God. Here's more of his words, the exact words. If he didn't think, in my opinion, that this information wasn't going to get out to the public in this day and information age that we live in, then he was either A, too naive, or too stupid. He forgot B. A, too naive, or too stupid to be a commanding officer of a ship like this. The alternative is he did it on purpose. It was a betrayal of trust with me, with his chain of command. When asked if Modley's personal attack on Crozier was appropriate, a senior defense official said, Today, I don't know what to say. Wow. 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 Incredible. Okay. Well, that's your Trump administration at work. And God help us all. Okay, guys, have a safe day. Hope you can get out in that sun and uh, avoid all the other people. Um, Okay, Uh, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.